On the 20th and 21st of October 2023, the London School of Economics's failing United States Centre held the conference The Future of Capitalism in an Age of Insecurity. Bringing together leading scholars and analysts, the conference examined the effects of geopolitical turmoil, democratic discontent, anti-globalism and technological change on capitalist economies. On Friday the 20th of October, the conference keynote event, Rethinking Market Capitalism, Innovation and the Path to Shared Prosperity, was given by Professor Daron Asamoglu, Institute Professor at MIT. The keynote event was chaired by Professor Peter Trubowitz, Center Director of the LSE Failing United States Center and Associate Fellow at Chatham House. I want to welcome everyone to LSE uh, and to the Conference on the Future of Capitalism in an Age of Insecurity. My name is Peter Trubowitz. I'm a professor in the International Relations Department and director of the Fallon United States Center, which is hosting this conference with the generous support of the John and Amy Family Foundation. Before I um, introduce tonight's speaker, a few words about the conference um, and what we're trying to achieve uh, from tonight through uh, the various roundtables we have set up for tomorrow. So the idea for the conference grew out of a series of conversations with colleagues here at the LSE and also beyond um, about the pressures and the cross pressures buffeting liberal capitalist democracies today from the geopolitical pressures to reshore, friendshore, nearshore, to the populist and um, anti-globalist backlashes roiling many democracies to the disruptive effects of technological innovation um, on the workplace. It seemed to us, uh, to many of us, that, the, that many of the neoliberal nostrums that prioritized international markets, that assumed open economies, uh, and that touted uh, global efficiency um, were now being contested as governments were finding themselves increasingly pressed to do more to shape national economies and to, to direct growth. In short, I think the general feeling is that we are living through a pretty extraordinary moment where much that was taken as an article of faith uh, is being questioned and where despite continued economic growth, more and more citizens seem to feel only less and less secure and are more distrustful their governments and their leaders. And all of this at a time when every month, the world seems to grow more unsettled and volatile. A lot's been written about how we got ourselves in this fix. Uh, much less has been written about how we get out of it, um, about how we make capitalism more inclusive, more democratic, how we mitigate the risk of a race to the bottom as countries look to reprioritize national political interest in the pursuit of economic growth and prosperity on the one hand and geopolitical advantage and economic security on the other. So this is the context within which we meet tonight that kind of framed the organization of this conference, the kind of issues that the conference is meant, uh, that seeks to address. And it's to that end that we convened a group of um, leading scholars, uh, analysts, uh, practitioners um, from different disciplines, 
the idea was to create an opportunity for direct, unmediated discussion across many different disciplines, economics, law, international relations, political science, and philosophy. And they're all represented on the panels with the idea of trying to broaden the conversation and perhaps to create some possibilities for breakthrough ideas. Tomorrow, we're gonna to be taking a hard look at the return of geopolitics, at the rise of populism and illiberalism, and the spread of anti-globalism. We begin tonight, though, by considering the role of technological innovation and the challenges that we face in turning new technologies into good jobs and shared prosperity. And we're very fortunate to have with us tonight someone who has thought long and hard about these issues, Professor Darren Ashimoglu. I know that many in the hall know of Darren's many writings in this area and many other areas, um, but for those of you who don't, uh, who are coming to his work for the first time, um, a few words by way of introduction. Darren is Institute Professor at uh, MIT, where his teaching and writing spans the fields of political economy, economic development, economic growth, technological change, inequality, labor economics, and the economics of networks. He's the winner of numerous academic prizes, including the coveted John Bates Clark uh, Award uh, given by the American Economic Association. He's also the author of six books, and you know, in addition to you know, dozens, 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 probably hundreds of uh, articles, uh, including the award-winning and best-selling "Why Nations Fail: Power, Prosperity, and Poverty," which he wrote with James Robinson, and his newest book, "Power and Progress: Our Thousand-Year Struggle Over Technology and Prosperity." Uh, that he wrote with Simon Johnson uh, that he'll be drawing on um, tonight. Darren is an elected fellow of the National Academy of Sciences, the American Philosophical Society, the British Academy of Sciences, and the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, but he's got another great credit on his CV. He got his MSc and his PhD here at the LSC. So it is especially gratifying to welcome Darren back to his old intellectual stomping grounds. I took him on Trubowitz's short accelerated tour of campus, which has changed a lot since Darren was here. He went to the top of the center building and saw London uh, in all its splendor. Um, so here are the ground rules for tonight. Darren's gonna talk for about 45 minutes at which time we're gonna open things up for uh, discussion, questions from the floor, but also for from our online audience. I know you're out there um, and we'll make an effort to get, I'll make an effort to get in as many questions as possible. If you're online, you need to use the Q and A function. You need to make sure that you let us know what your name is and your affiliation. You'll have to do the same thing in person. Um, finally, just let me say three, uh, I, I'm obliged to mention three housekeeping notes. First, if you haven't already, please put your mobile phone on silent. Second, we're not expecting a fire drill. So if, you, the, if the alarms go off, it's for real. 
The exits here are one is to the west here, one is to the south, and one is to the east. This is not to alarm anybody, but uh, it's part of the drill. Uh, and last but not least, the bathrooms are down uh, past the stairwell. Okay, we're good to go. Without further ado, please join me in welcoming Darren Ushimoglu, giving him a very warm LSE My true pleasure to be back at the LSE to talk about this important topic. Hopefully, I can have my slides up. Let's see. Work. Uh, this one. Oh, yeah. Very, very go. Perfect. Perfect. Fantastic. So, uh, <clears throat> I'm not going to question some of the things that Peter talked about, which is you know, the centrality of some sort of market system and democracy, but I'm going to talk about some ideas that take these sets of institutions in some broad, broadly construed form as given, but argues that they are intimately linked with the path of innovation and technology, and that we are going through a particularly defi defining period because there are currents that are pushing us towards a particularly dangerous path for these technologies. And in doing so, I'm going to be very much drawing on my recent book with uh, Simon Johnson, Power and Progress, Our Thousand-Year Struggle Over Technology and Prosperity. And the reason why Simon and I wrote this book is because we believe that we are in the midst of a very consequential social and technological transformation, but some very important questions are not being asked. And those relate to who controls technology, how that control translates into different forms of technology, and also for tools such as artificial intelligence and digital tools more generally, who controls the information that is so central for their functioning. All of these, we believe, are not just critical, but they are overlooked in a specific way in current debates. That wouldn't be disastrous if another set of ideas that are also widely held among uh, a number of economists and many policymakers were valid and somehow whatever that control and direction and informational issues were, however they were resolved, there were powerful enough forces that ultimately from an improvement in our broader technological capabilities, there will be powerful impetus towards shared prosperity, towards every group, every demographic group, every type of skill, every country's workforce, for example, to benefit from these changes. And in fact, that is an idea that you see a lot in economics, you see a lot in policy discussions, and you see a lot in uh, all sorts of debates centered around Silicon Valley and other tech hubs. But curiously enough, it doesn't even have a name. So Simon and I christened it the productivity bandwagon. So the productivity bandwagon roughly says the following. Technology improves, our capabilities get better. Once our capabilities get better, that makes us produce more. For example, we produce more per number of key input labor. And then from there, there is another set of forces that bring benefits for workers. It could be better products, lower 
prices for goods, and critically, of course, a better wage opportunities in the labor market. After all, if we are really after something like shared prosperity, most of us earn our living in the labor market. So if the labor market channel doesn't work, it's going to be very hard to maintain something like shared prosperity. The productivity bandwagon view is not blind to inequality. Some people may benefit more than others. That's completely well understood. And that's completely part of the canon of thinking of, for example, people in Silicon Valley. That's why they say it's fine for us to be the main winners, but other people are going to benefit mightily as well. So we're fine. Over the years, thinking a lot uh, and banging my head on many walls, I have come to believe that the productivity bandwagon is not as powerful. And actually, it is part of this broader investigation of what to do with technology, how to worry about technology and how to reshape it, that we have to ask, when is it that the productivity bandwagon applies? And the key step here really is based on two premises. One is that once average productivity increases, we're producing more per worker because we've just gotten so creative and AI tools or digital tools or computer or whatever your favorite is, has made us much more productive in the production process, some of those gains are going to be shared with the workers. Well, that presumes that there is a distribution of political, organizational, and social power that at least creates pathways for workers to benefit from them. That's the first premise. The second premise is that actually there are also reasons for the market process to induce employers to want more labor and to be willing to pay more for labor. Now, it turns out that if you are so inclined, you can find plenty of examples in history where that sort of more or less works out. But if you also are so inclined, you'll also find plenty of examples where it doesn't, which is the basis of our claim that the productivity bandwagon is not an absolute, but it is institutionally embedded, and also it's embedded in a specific direction of technology. So let me start with the power aspect, and I'll move to the direction of technology aspect, which is perhaps even more challenging for some people to think about, but I think it's useful to go through it. In terms of power, I think there's, it's, it's best to talk about some historical examples. So here I have two transformative uh, innovations of, from history. One is the windmills that completely changed the structure of production and massively improved productivity in the medieval economy. But if you look around uh, several centuries uh, bracketing the windmills, you don't see uh, peasants and farm workers doing much better. And when you dig into it, it's very clear this was a very unequally distributed power situation. The windmills were controlled by the very large landlords and abbots and uh, and uh, and and, uh, and the high high echelons of the church hierarchy. And there were a lot of coercive and other institutions that shaped how work was performing, how it was compensated. So under these circumstances, it is no surprise that nothing like the productivity bandwagon was not there, not, neither in the short run nor in the, nor in the long run. Even sharper is the device on the right-hand side. It has many fathers, but it is often assigned to Eli Whitney, the cotton gin, which completely revolutionized the US South, which was a truly uh, true backwater economically until the cotton gin enabled cotton plantations, and made huge fortunes and turned that into a very dynamic part of the international economy, the biggest exporter of cotton, which was the, of course, the lifeblood of the industrial revolution. But the workers who produced cotton were the enslaved black uh, Americans. 
and their conditions decidedly worsened as they were moved down south. Their working hours uh, lengthened. They became much more subject to much more coercive activity. So power is one aspect. So we have to think about power and with technologies such as AI that really shape who controls information, I think we cannot ignore power issues. But even the second step of the market process working seamlessly to go from higher productivity to higher wages needs to be perhaps rethought. And here's the economic theory is sort of simple. It says, well, firms become more productive because they have better technologies. That increases average productivity per worker, meaning how much workers, how much, uh, how much output is being produced per worker. Well, with more productivity, then firms should go and hire more employees, and that's going to push upward, put upward pressure on wages, and that's the key channel for shared prosperity. But there's a little sort of sleight of hand in that reasoning, because actually, uh, economic theory, if you go back to your first course, uh, everybody should take a first course in economics, uh, you learn that you know, workers are not paid average, according to average productivity, but they're paid according to what economists call marginal productivity, what a worker contributes to production. And there is no law of economics that says that average productivity and uh, marginal productivity should co-move. Automation, the substitution of machines and algorithms for tasks previously performed by humans is exactly that type of technological progress that increases average productivity, but may not increase marginal productivity. In fact, it may reduce it. In the book, we illustrate this idea through a number of examples. My favorite is the oft-quoted uh, utopian or dystopian view of the future of the factory, where it says the future factory will have two employees, a man and a dog. The man is there to feed the dog, and the dog is there not to make sure that the man doesn't touch the equipment. Well, that's not my idea of utopia, but if that is the factory we're heading towards, average productivity is going to be huge. One man, okay, you can count the dog, and a lot of output, and that's getting better and better with better equipment, but not many employers will rush to hire more humans and their dogs. So there could be a big disconnect between average and marginal productivity. And in fact, if you look at a oft-discussed historical episode, according to some, the definitive proof that we are beneficiaries of technological advances, the Industrial Revolution, it turns out it's more nuanced. It is indeed true that we are today so much more prosperous, healthy, more comfortable than people who lived 300 years ago, 250 years ago, and that is largely because of Industrial Revolution, but there was nothing automatic about it. And in fact, the first 100 years of the Industrial Revolution dating roughly from 1750 or so, where already important advances in uh, uh, textile machinery were being made, were not happy times for workers. And a lot of that was because of automation. Automation meant that many skilled artisans uh, lost their premiums and there was a lot more increase in output and much less dependence on, uh, 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 on, on labor. And as a result, real incomes did not increase, working conditions worsened, working hours lengthened. And in fact, another very important theme becomes very apparent from, uh, from a rethink of the Industrial Revolution that the, how you use the technology is very much embedded with issues of institutions and power as well. The modern factory system was based on using machinery like automation, 
but it was also based on a much better and much tighter control of labor. And it was a draconian place for many people, the long hours, the unhealthy conditions, the amazingly disruptive noise. And we know about this because people kept on writing petitions and complaining, but nobody listened. And it was bracketed by a lot of other social changes that were pretty awful too. Though on the left, we have uh, the uh, Jeremy Bentham's Panopticon, famous from Michel Foucault and the Guardians of the Galaxy. But Bentham didn't think of this as just a prison. He, in fact, the, uh, the, the prototype came from his brother, Samuel Bentham, who tried to apply it in a steel factory. And, uh, and he, Bentham was very emphatic. This is, you know, you should use this in factories because it's a better method of control. Well, Panopticon wasn't used, but factories were really very much down the same philosophy of controlling workers, monitoring workers, making sure they didn't take time off and making sure that they exerted maximum effort for very little pay. And the whole working conditions and uh, disease environment was also horrible and workers did not have any recourse against it because again, this was an issue of power, life expectancy in places like Manchester may have fallen to about 30 years at birth during the worst part of that pollution and endemic disease. Things changed. The second half of the Industrial Revolution, starting sometime around 1850, started getting better, but there was nothing automatic about it, and it took a complete redirection of technological changes I'm going to talk about, and major reforms. Britain became much more democratic, a very, very slow process, and nothing, uh, nothing that the elites were uh, sort of willing to, to, to deliver. You know, chartists uh, who had tremendous political support uh, were put in jail uh, for their efforts. Uh, and trade unions that were very heavily prosecuted became legal in the last quarter of the century. So it was a complete process of institutional change that it took to thank the kind of uh, the, the happier form of industrial revolution that we sometimes remember while forgetting the earlier, much harsher form. Now, you might think this is all history and it has no relevance to today because we live in much more civilized societies. You know, who wouldn't want to be ruled by a tech baron rather than a feudal lord? Well, yes, there is some truth to that. Things are different, but they are different in a much more nuanced way. And let me now use a little bit of U.S. data to illustrate it because the United States is the, uh, the, the, the most telling ideal type of some of these issues that I'm talking about. So here in this chart, what I'm showing you is the evolution of real wages for 10 demographic groups by, differentiated by gender on the left and right for men and women, and also by education going all the way from the orange, which is we workers with a high school without, without a high school degree, all the way up to the blue, dark blue, which is workers with postgraduate degree. So what you see is that everything is normalized to, 90, to zero uh, in, in, uh, uh, in 1963, so that you can trace the cumulative changes from 1963 to all the way to 2017. So you see the period from 1963 uh, to uh, the middle of the 1970s is a period of shared prosperity. It looks nothing like the caricature of the early industrial revolution that I painted. Real wages for all demographic groups are growing. They're growing in tandem. Though some of those lines are on top of each other. You may not be even able to tell them apart. And they're growing very, very rapidly, about 2.5% a year in real terms. That's real. You know, you can create a middle class out of nothing in two decades with that sort of growth. And this is not if you, you have to use other data and different categories than the ones I'm showing here if you want to go further back. But the, the, the pattern is even more stark in the, two, uh, in the 1950s because low education groups are actually growing faster. But then from around 1980, a completely different picture emerges. Now you see real wages 
of high education groups, especially postgraduates, keeping keep on keeps on increasing. But many demographic groups, for example, men with high school degrees or associate degrees, the ones shown in uh, dark gray, are actually uh, experiencing real wage decline. So this is not shared prosperity, it's the opposite of shared prosperity. Some people are getting richer, capital is doing well, managers are doing very well, people who, are, uh, who have specialized skills are doing very well, but about half of the population is not sharing and in fact doing much worse than they did before. So not all of the concerns we have from the 19th century are completely irrelevant. Well, this is somewhat unique to the United States, somewhat not. Many other uh, OECD economies have experienced significant increases in inequality as this chart from the OECD shows. And many of them have had stagnant or, or very anemic growth at the bottom, but no other country has had this sort of as large an increase in, in inequality and the fall of fall, bottom falling out as in the United States. And that again goes back to issues of power and institutions. And I'll come back to that in a second. Now, the question then becomes, why was it that starting in sometime around the 1850s, Britain and then other countries, including the United States, were able to take important steps towards shared prosperity? And why was it that that process was reversed? Well, I mentioned two premises. I didn't do that idly. I'm going to come back to those premises as the cause of shared prosperity and their breakdown as the cause of the reversal of that shared prosperity. So the auto industry in the United States, it's a bit later than the 1850s, but it's actually emblematic of what I want to talk about because it was a very much a pioneer in automation. Henry Ford and others were at the forefront of introducing new machinery, especially with the electrification of the factory, completely reorganizing the factory, making tasks more modular, introducing first interchangeable part system, and then the assembly line. So that is an automation. And then that really emphasizes one thing that I want to be very clear. Nothing I say here is against automation. Automation has been with us since the beginning of the Industrial Revolution and will continue to be with us uh, 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 in the 21st century. But what I'm going to talk about is emphasis, too much emphasis on automation, an unbalanced portfolio of technologies that we are in the midst of. And that you can see from this picture, which uh, highlights not only the new machinery and the automation that it brings, but also how labor was actually critical. Together with this new machinery, there were more technical tasks. Workers were critical in many of the last steps of the production of the assembly of cars. And there was a whole set of new functions, what uh, in my work, especially with Pascual Restrepo, I call new tasks that were critical. There were many design functions, inspection, maintenance, and much more sophisticated technical work, as well as a whole slew of non-production tasks. This is the period in which factories become essentially clerical organizations with a big growth in white-collar workers in factories. And you see workers there doing these key tasks. And it was these new tasks that were critical for wages growing, employment growing, while also the output of the auto industry exploded in the first half of the 20th century. But also important was that the auto industry was, uh, was at the forefront of worker power. 
So this is a picture from the GM's sit-down strike organized by UAW, but there were similar events. The auto industry also had much greater worker, worker voice, was a process, but that worker voice was important for working conditions, it was important for wages, and it was also important about how technology was used. Technology is not used in a vacuum. You cannot divorce the direction of innovation and the direction of how you use technology from who has power within organization and within society more broadly, a theme I'm going to come back to. So why is it that then that shared prosperity model broke down? Well, it broke down because its two premises, its two foundations broke down. So here is an auto factory of today. You see even more advanced, very impressive robots. They are really the best, my favorite kind of automation because actually those, that's the kind of automation that did bring productivity increases. Uh, but in many countries, when robots were introduced, this did not go hand in hand with uh, the creation of new tasks. So you don't see the workers around. There's one guy, perhaps he's very important, but he's just watching the robots. So emphasis on too much automation and not enough of the creation of new tasks. Now you might think, you know, that's like a nice story, but does Daron have the empirical evidence for it? And it turns out that actually automation is really, at least for the US, is a singularly important factor and perhaps underappreciated, but, but therefore it's my job to try to convince you of it. So here is another chart, uh, which I'll go through, and this is the last one. I won't have any more complicated charts, but this is very much a complement to the earlier US chart that I showed you. There I depicted the growth of real wages for 10 demographic groups. Here I have gone to more detailed demographic groups distinguished by gender, education, experience, and, uh, or age, and ethnicity. And instead of showing you the year-by-year -year evolution, what I'm doing you, I'm showing you the cumulative change in the real wages of these different uh, demographic groups. Again, real wages, uh, real hourly wages, from 1980 to 2016, 2017. So the size of that, those, those circles is how big those demographic groups are, and the color coding shows what their education level is. And you can immediately see that many of these big circles are below the zero line, which means that those are the groups that are losing their real income. So you see the same pattern that I was highlighting earlier on. What's on the horizontal axis is most interesting. That's the estimate that Pascual Restrepo and I have for what fraction of the tasks that that demographic group used to perform in 1980 that have since been automated. So 30% there you see for a high school uh, 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 group, the high school male group, uh, it means that 30% of the tasks, many of them blue color tasks are now automated. And the result that I want to take you I want you to take away from this is that there is a remarkable, very strong, and it turns out very robust relationship between automation and inequality. So a lot of you know up, uh, upwards of fifty percent, perhaps as much as seventy percent of the between group inequality changes since 1980 are about automation. So it's about how we're using this technology, not creating enough new tasks, not creating enough worker complementarities, but going down the path of automating and automating. That's really so important. But that, again, cannot be separated from power. And power, and now I can talk about one other aspect of it. When I talk of power, I don't necessarily just mean political power, which is you know, by you know, going the ballot box or military power. The emphasis in the book that Simon and I have is on social power, persuasion power, meaning what are the visions? What, are, what is the ideology? What are the beliefs of the very powerful actors? And that is, of course, it's self-determined, bracketed by other things. And but many elements of that equilibrium started changing in the United States sometime around the late 1970s. And 
you can capture different snippets of it, but two that are emblematic of it is at the bottom is the defeat of the uh, professional air controller strike and the firing of the uh, strikers by Ronald Reagan. But even more important in my assessment is what the priorities of the managerial class became. And that is not caused, but it is emblematically summarized by the famous economist Milton Friedman's line that the only social responsibility of business is to increase returns to shareholders. And if you want to do that, cutting labor costs is a great idea because you can give a few more cents to your uh, shareholders. And automation is a very powerful way of cutting uh, labor costs. So there has been a tremendous amount of emphasis on automation because the corporate world went into an equilibrium in which automation was very much favored at the expense of things like, for example, sharing of the rents and the profits with workers and more cooperative work environment and associated with other things like managers becoming stronger, workers becoming weaker, monitoring, intensifying, and so on. But it was also caused, I'm going to argue in two slides, by a change in vision and change in ideology in the innovation sector. And that's why innovation part of this is so important. And that's why I'm going to argue uh, uh, this is the time to rethink some of these questions. So before I do that, I wanna now transition to AI. And the first slide that I'm gonna show you, and I'm not gonna go through everything here in great detail, but I wanna just put it out there, is that we are not actually predestined to further doom and further inequality increases and all of the problematic aspects of that because AI is a what economists call a general purpose technology. You can use it in many different ways. And I personally think that generative AI is a very exciting technology because it has great capabilities for being complementary to humans in terms of humans performing their tasks better and creating new tasks for humans. And there are already some research showing uh, like a proof of concept that you can use generative AI in, for programmers as a helper or for, for writing tasks or for customer service representatives when it is used not to replace customer service representatives, but as a way of making them better decision makers. So the real promise of AI, I will argue, is actually helping humans become better problem solvers and better decision makers. If you look, if you think about it, many, many of the tasks that many of me of the jobs that we are engaged in are series of problem solving. And it's not just for you know, creative artists and office workers. If you're an electrician, your job is a series of problem solving tasks. And the big constraint for you is your information. And we live in a world of abundant information and a complete scarcity of useful information. And what generative AI's promise, real promise, is that it can act as a human helper in providing the right kind of information and in the, in the right way so that humans can become better problem solvers. This is not automating, this is not replacing humans, but this different path. But that's not what we hear unless the tech industry claims that they are really going to help workers and that argument sometimes runs. It's no accident that every single new tool in the Microsoft Office is called Copilot. You know, uh, Shakespeare would have said they would protest too much. But, uh, but I think that promise is there. So we have to understand what Simon and I call vision. Vision has always been a major driver of how you develop technology, how you use technology, and what is acceptable. 
the modern factory system would not have emerged from a very harsh vision of rising uh, middle-class entrepreneurs, which viewed workers as you know, no, no good doers that could be repressed. And uh, many of the important decisions on how to build things throughout uh, history has been shaped by visions of very important or very powerful people, such as this guy called Le Grand Français in his time, Ferdinand de Lesseps, who was single-handedly important in convincing people and designing uh, the Suez Canal. He was also the techno-optimist of his day. He was completely crazy in terms of what could be achieved, but lo and behold, he turned out to be right. The technological changes came just at the right time. He had access to just the right amount of course, labor, sorry, Egyptians, uh, and, and the French government stepped in to subsidize him, and the Suez Canal was a huge success. But then he took exactly that same vision to the Panama Canal, and that shows the how that vision can go wrong. The conditions were completely different. He was completely unprepared as his techno-optimism exploded in his face. 22,000 people dead, a complete failure that had to be redone from scratch. So the question is, what is the vision of the tech industry? And I argue, I have argued for a while, perhaps controversially, I don't know, you'll decide, that actually the AI field is trapped in its own vision trap. and but. The alternatives to that vision are already there and have already been around. So the vision trap, unfortunately, is associated with this brilliant person, Alan Turing, a fantastic mathematician. But he, his philosophy, I think, ran ahead of his mathematics in conceptualizing what was it that we wanted from machines? What is it that we wanted from digital computers? Autonomous machine intelligence. Autonomous machine intelligence is a particular way of thinking what the objective of the digital industry is. And this was a vision that was inherited by the people who launched AI, where the AI field was christened in this important Dartmouth conference in 1956, together with many MIT Stanford uh, scientists. And it has been the dominant vision of the tech industry. So if you want to impress other people in the tech industry, you have to show that you have your, your programs, your algorithms have reached human parity. Once you believe in autonomous machine intelligence, it's a very small distance to say, you know, the main thing we want to do with these machines is automation. The main thing we want to do with these machines is control over humans because, you know, machines are better than humans once they reach autonomous machine intelligence. But this wasn't the only vision. And in fact, uh, better AI was possible and has been demonstrated except that we don't put enough emphasis on it. Norbert Wiener, an important uh, mathematician and engineer from MIT, started criticizing this Turing vision as early as 1950 and tried to uh, chart a different course with his cybernetics. But the, the even more important were practical men like J.C.R. Licklider and Douglas Engelbart, which actually turned this into a reality, both with the funding that JCR Licklider created and with his students and Douglas Engelbart. He, for example, is the inventor of many of the things that we depend on today, computer mouse, hypertext, hyperlink, visual uh, menus. All of these came up of a very different vision. Both men, including uh, Norbert Wiener, emphasized complementarity of digital tools to humans. This is the perspective that we call Simon and I call machine usefulness rather than machine intelligence. What we want is not intelligence from machines, but usefulness. A usefulness for whom? Usefulness for workers, usefulness for citizens. But the problem is that right now it is the machine intelligence, AI, as, uh, uh, as currently existing paradigm that's dominating industry, the tech industry, and that is 
symbiotic with the demand for more worker control and more automation from the corporate world. But that symbiosis creates a huge problem. So far, I have taken it for granted that productivity will increase and we will have a distorted division of it. But actually, when you think about it, that is not guaranteed either. The lesseps is so interesting because these visionaries are not looking after their own interests. The lesseps was destroying himself and his family. His children ended up in jail. Once you, are get, you get, get trapped in a vision, there's no guarantee that the market process will find the right thing. And in fact, the other remarkable thing, I could have had a chart here, but I know it's late, so I won't show it. I'll just say it. The other remarkable thing in the US economy and actually most of the other industrialized world is how disappointing productivity growth has been over the last four decades. We are told of the digital revolution every day and we see it everywhere as Robert Solo said, but in the productivity statistics, he's been declared wrong and he returns with double force. And there is a good reason for that. Automation is very useful, but it's not gonna be an engine that, uh, that revolutionizes productivity. After all, if you improve costs by displacing labor from a few tasks by 10%, 20%, 30%, even 40%, that's not create, I guess they're not gonna create a productivity revolution. But even worse, if you're trapped in the vision of over-automation, you're gonna automate a lot of things that humans are very good at. You know, as opposed to the tech industry, Simon and I argue, I've argued in my other work, that humans are actually pretty skilled. They have a lot of judgment. They have a lot of versatility. If you get rid of them, you're going to get rid of a lot of productivity opportunities as well. So uh, self-checkout kiosk, customer service, and uh, over-automated things are examples of it. But this is all made much worse because, as I said, AI is also about automation, is about, about data control. And that is also making things worse. It's making things worse in, worse in workplaces, but it's also making things work politically. Democracy is at a strain because data has become much more centralized. It's become much more centralized in the hands of government bodies, such as the Chinese Communist Party. That's the social credit system. It's not fully functional yet, but in a number of towns, you cannot get train tickets. You have to check your social credit first. That's the picture of that. And many people, I included, would say, sure, i much rather have uh, Google and Facebook and Microsoft uh, control all the information rather than the Chinese Communist Party, but I still don't like it that Google and Facebook and Microsoft control all that information because they're up to no good sometimes, and how are they going to be accountable if they call that information, and how is democracy going to work if information is that central? So I want to end by saying, well, if this is the picture, is this really, you know, gone? Are we too far gone in this bad trap where we keep on automating and automating, not creating equality, enhancing opportunities, not creating enough productivity growth, but also at the same time empowering the same actors that are in the business of automation and information control? Yes, to some degree, but there are things we can do. I think the first thing that Simon and I argue, and this is we argue this is the first step in all major uh, reform movements from the pro-democracy movement in Britain to the progressive era in the United States, you need to have a different narrative. The narrative shouldn't be just about how we're all going to benefit unconditionally from the productivity bandwagon and the geniuses such as Sam Altman and uh, Elon Musk are going to push the technology forward and we should just let them do it. Of course, they are very talented entrepreneurs. Uh, you know, Nobody can doubt the skills of Elon Musk, but I still wouldn't want everything to be delegated to him. So the change in narrative is how do we 
create the right sort of conversation about what we want from technology, how we get it, and whether 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 what is what is not fee technically feasible. And the first step, I would say, is that I think we need to form a consensus that it is technically feasible to have pro-human, pro-worker AI, which is what I have argued, and it is desirable to have pro-worker, pro-human AI, which is also what I have argued. So that's the first step, but that's not going to go get you very far unless you have countervailing power, sort of distribution of social power in society that can withstand the wealth and the prestige of, uh, of the tech industry and the large corporations. There's nothing wrong with large corporations. There is Tech industry is a wonderful thing. It has been the driver of a lot of innovation, a lot of productivity for the United States, but that doesn't mean that they should not have uh, forces that push against them. Throughout history, we've had uh, a number of forces against that democracy, civil society movement, such as Ralph Nader, government regulation embedded in democratic institutions, and the workers' movement. All of these are at their Nader right now. So the question is, can we build some of them? Well, for example, government regulation is the easiest one, and then democracy, perhaps civil society movements, perhaps one day a different labor movement that can have a voice in AI. After all, AI is going to shape the future of all consumers, all citizens, all workers. Shouldn't they have a voice? So when the US Senate next time has a hearing, shouldn't there be a voice from somebody other than the tech leaders? And in doing this, the emphasis here is again on technology. So my work throughout the last three decades, uh, and very much so in this context, has been that direction of technology is a choice. And when we are at a point like this, where AI has so much promise, but so much danger, it is really important to think about redirecting technological change. And again, some of that may appear like a dream. I've talked about people like Engelbart and JCR Licklider. Uh, people like that have been around. Many people actually thought that the personal computers were going to be, could be, were not completely rosy eye. They could be uh, tools that would empower workers, empower citizens. For example, Ted Nelson, uh, he was one of the leaders of a broadly construed hacker movement, uh, which wanted to take computers out of the hands of corporations such as IBM and uh, and make it much more usable for workers, much more usable for citizens, and much much more decentralized, democratized information control. But of course, instead they got Microsoft. So, uh, so it didn't work out. But they weren't completely wrong that this was feasible. So redirecting technological change, I think, has to be a part of the agenda, part of the conversation, and part of what we aim with policies. And we can talk about what sort of policies can achieve that. But I, what I want to end is one final picture because at this point many economists rightly are going to say but if there are you are you being completely naive in thinking that the market process can be interfered with and the, that technology can be redirected after all technology is a decentralized process it's millions of people contributing in some uh, organic fashion who is going to redirect it is redirection complete dream and wouldn't redirection end up much worse than whatever you end up with on the ground without intervention and, and I think the history has examples that shows redirection is possible and it's desirable. One of them is climate change or energy. Uh, we have known climate change as an uh, undeniable fact since the 1980s, but there was actually, true to, to tell you the truth, there was absolutely nothing that you could have done in the 1980s in terms of reducing carbon emissions because the alternatives weren't there. As late as the late 2000s, uh, renewables were more expensive than fossil fuels. 
But since then, we've had an enormous boom in terms of patents that have completely changed solar technology, that have improved onshore and offshore wind. There has been tremendous advances in terms of learning by doing. And today, fossil fuels are cost competitive, uh, oh, sorry, uh, renewables are cost competitive with fossil fuels. And that is just centrally about redirection of technological change. So I think it at least shows that redirection of technological change is not something we should rule out just by, as being impossible. Thank you very much for listening. Well, thank you, Darren. That was terrific. And you came in right on time. Um, so I know there's going to be a lot of questions. I, I, maybe um, I might, um, I'd like to pick up on one of the, I, I think, attention that um, you didn't frame it so much as attention, but on the one hand, machine usefulness and maybe data control um, uh, that you, you mentioned in the challenge. And I don't Think of it just you know maybe not only in the term in terms of like surveillance i mean it it seems to me that um that there's a a tension between the uh, what you talk about in the book and you talked about in 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 the presentation here of making technological innovation more bottom-up more democratic more inclusive and and more machine um, useful, and um, and pressures that exist today, geopolitical pressures, it seems to me, that are really calling for enhanced surveillance, um, sheer scale like um, not decentralizing, but in fact, quite the opposite. Um, um, you know, kind of turning big tech into kind of government-backed national champions. And of course we see, you know, um, <clears throat> I, I guess my, my question is, there seems to be this kind of countervailing force quite different than the one that you're mentioning here, which is, geopolitical in nature, which is, in a sense, pushing countries, we've already seen it really on display in China and Russia as well, I think. And while it would be different when, you know, perhaps, you know, different in the United States, that there's pressure also to consolidate and to scale up and to gain kind of greater data control, not so much in terms of surveillance, but control of the technology itself for geopolitical reasons. So I'm wondering kind of, you know, how do we navigate that? Because these are, they're, they're kind of pushing in opposite directions. Okay, so uh, how many hours do we have? <laughs> uh, no, I, I could talk a long time about that, but let me talk about two aspects of it. First of all, you know, uh, <clears throat> you know, I am, I don't want to be perceived as like, anti-tech or the anti-tech industry. Mm -hmm. I think it's an amazing ecosystem. But I sometimes joke that if uh, China did not exist, Silicon Valley would have to invent it. Uh, it's like the most powerful argument for uh, pushing back against regulation of tech. And, and actually, if you look into the details, uh, I don't think it holds up. Uh, first of all, mm -hmm. in many areas, different countries pursue different uses of technologies. And as I'm arguing, these different uses are not inferior to each other. 
actually a pro-human direction can be better. And second, China is not a leader in most technologies. There are some areas where you're not going to be able to shift Chinese trajectory, surveillance and monitoring. China, Huawei just by itself has exported surveillance technologies to 60 countries around the world. That's going to remain. You have to take that as given. But in many other areas, China would follow where U.S. goes to some degree, as, it, as, as you know, China built its amazing solar panel industry in response to what happened in Germany. So I think... Uh, uh, Room for regulation is plenty, and so we we cannot just use that boogeyman for mm -hmm. talking about uh, you know uh, abrogating our responsibility for regulation. Second, actually, how data is used. So this is this is you know I could spend hours on this. How data is used is actually a very very specific choice that depends on the the sort of the Turing style machine intelligence vision, mm -hmm. the power of large companies, and some very specific choices about how the technology is being used. So in other words, the, the, the way that the industry has become, uh, has developed is very much based on lots of data collection mm. and use of that data without compensation. So I think if we're going to redirect technological change, we need to change the architecture of AI so that it's not dependent on so much data mm. or, or it uses much more high quality data. And that has to involves some sort of data markets, but data markets, you know, then I will get into the details, but it cannot be on individual rights. So you need to have collective ownership of data to make this work. So it's a significant uh, uh, institutional change. But if, if I may uh, give you one explanation for why I'm saying that, you know, think of ChatGPT, you know, it's like very impressive. Everybody's crazy about it. But why are you so crazy about it? Because it sounds like human. But why is that useful? Why on earth would we want our machines to sound like human? I've just outlined an alternative which said, you know, we want much better advice. If I'm an electrician, if I'm a plumber, if I'm a, a journalist, I want much better advice. For that, I don't need, uh, I don't need the machine to sound human. I need the machine to have very good domain knowledge. But what the ChatGPT has done is that it has a completely sacrificed domain knowledge. All that hallucination problem is because it's been trained as a predict the next word system on the basis of massive amount of data so that you can sound like human, but in doing so, it has sacrificed domain knowledge. So that's a particular business strategy and a particular ideological strategy. And in doing so, it has also relied on some very few hubs of high quality data repositories uh, and completely expropriated them. Wikipedia, almost all of the general wisdom of uh, uh, of ChatGPT comes from Wikipedia. We are just so impressed by GPT-4's programming skills. A lot of that comes from uh, Stock Overflow, which is like a uh, programming uh, advice website. It's very nicely curated, excellent answers. And it's been completely, all of that data has been incorporated into ChatGPT. Worse, the we have a race to the bottom of low quality data. Uh, there's a very nice paper that came out a couple of months ago, which shows that once ChatGPT was released and programmers started using that, stock overflow completely collapsed. Nobody goes there anymore. So if you want to do further training on high quality data, you cannot do it. Wikipedia is under big strain for the same reasons. So this is not the right path, even if your objective was to develop the right language model. But the way that you can monetize these things has, and the ideology has really pushed the industry in a particular path, I believe. I'm going to open it up here. Um... Ian, I'm going to give you the first question down here. 
Chris, I'll come to you in a minute. Thank you for a fascinating talk, Ian Shapiro, Yale Political Science. Uh, I found everything you said persuasive, but I was surprised that you didn't talk about the demand side at all of the story. That no, not to sound too Keynesian about it, but if if all the technology increases marginal productivity and nothing goes to average productivity, where is the, the effective demand going to come from to purchase uh, everything that gets produced? So could you talk about that side of the story? Yeah, I think that's an important question as well. I have not focused on that in my work. Obviously, the money is going somewhere. It's going to uh, the professional class and the very rich entrepreneurs. They are consuming a lot of it. You know, U.S. saving rate is not very high, but they are consuming less than the low-income people, and they're consuming it on a different set of goods, and that's creating a number of tensions. And I can see a situation in which that could become much worse because there is an argument demand shortage. Uh, some people, like Joe Stiglitz, claim that's the situation we're in. I think uh, the evidence is still uh, sort of not solid that that's the main problem right now in the macroeconomy, but it's an important set of issues. Thank you. Anne-Marie. Hi, Anne-Marie Slaughter from New America. I've really enjoyed the talk. My question is, you focused a lot on worker power and bottom-up um, voices uh, against the tower, not necessarily against the tech industry, but pushing back on the tech industry as an important constraint. You didn't mention changing the composition of the tech industry itself. It, it can't have escaped anybody's notice in this uh, audience that the composition of every single tech picture you showed um, <laughs> was rather uh, homogenous, shall I say. Uh, and I, I do think in terms of consumer power, you have a lot more power insisting that a lot of these companies dramatically change who they hire. And as they do, then different questions get asked and different uh, scenarios are in the minds of those uh, who are developing this. So I'd just love to hear your comments on that. So I think that's an excellent point. You're absolutely right. That is important. We mentioned it briefly in the book, but we don't dwell on it. And, and I think mea culpa, we should have dwelled on it more. But part of the reason is, and this is my belief, but you know, belief is not substitute for hard fact. Uh, but my belief is that if you all you did was make the tech industry more diverse by including more women and minorities, that's not going to change anything. As long as the overall ideology and the market incentives are the same, that won't by itself be sufficient. That's my view. It would help, and it would be very complementary to changing to the overall values. And, uh, and the market forces, but it won't by itself be sufficient. But but it's an important thing. We talk about it, but not sufficiently in the book. Chris, let's take a question online. Sure. Uh, this question that comes from uh, someone watching from Seattle, Nikat Rashid, asks, how do we bring regulatory frameworks up to speed to ensure we can rebalance the power and technology paradigm? Current knowledge of tech among U.S. policymakers is abysmal, as evidenced by congressional hearings. Thank you. Yes. Uh, Absolutely, 100%. Uh, I would say three very brief things. First of all, it's not just in tech. You know, US has lost its regulatory muscle. There are many areas from healthcare to financial regulation where, you know, uh, the same sort of political and social changes I mentioned 
have also pushed against deregulation. And so it's a more systemic problem. Second, uh, I think, you know, the regulatory muscle terminology also suggests you build it by using it. So once you start doing the regulation, you'll actually gain more and more and more expertise. The sense of public civil service ethos that was so critical for successful regulation in the past will could come back, should come back. And the third is, yes, I think some of the hearings were not, you know, the brightest moment for uh, for U.S. lawmakers. But there are actually staffers and senators who are much more knowledgeable. And uh, and it's not like the we are so far behind that we cannot talk about it. After all, if you want to talk about the uh, uh, regulation of nuclear industry, you don't need to be, you need, you know, knowing the nuclear technology is important. You need to talk to some nuclear engineers, but whether you want nuclear weapons or not, you know, we can have an opinion on that. And I think a lot of people in among the lawmakers are qualified to have some conversation on this if they so decide. Okay, I'm starting to see some hands come up, which is great. I'm going to start. You, you've been patient. Person <laughs> in the blue right there, blue shirt. Yeah. Hi there. Thank you. That's Karsten Jung from IPPR here in London. Um, uh, my question is around le policy levers for directing uh, technology. And you mentioned maybe what you could call micro levers, uh, such as labor unions taking a stance on what type of automation or augmentation should take place. Now, my question is. Um, are there also macro layers? Um, we are publishing a report next week on in an industrial strategy uh, connection with AI. So actually saying these are the type of technologies we want to incentivize through taxes, um, regulations, and subsidies. Um, so do you perhaps have any um, historical examples where industrial strategy helped direct technology? Yeah, uh, it's a great question. Thank you. So the picture that you still have up there is a version of industrial strategy. I would say it's not industrial policy as typically mean, meant. There was some element of uh, the support to some specific companies, but that wasn't the dominant one. There were uh, there was carbon pricing in some industrialized nations. There were regulations starting in California and other places. And there was also a lot of subsidies to a broad uh, the, the, slate of uh, green technologies and all of those were important. And uh, in the book, uh, we talk about a couple of uh, issues in this respect. One is actually, if you look at the US tax code and there are similarities in other uh, industrialized nations as well, although I have not studied it uh, as carefully uh, or carefully at all, but work I published uh, a couple of years ago with Andrea Manera and Pascual Restrepo shows that if you hire labor, you're paying a marginal tax rate, you and the, uh, as an employer and the worker herself or himself, you're paying a tax rate of somewhere between 25 to 30%, including all the indirect cost payroll taxes, healthcare benefits and other things. If you instead, right now you hire a machine or you buy a machine to do the same thing, you're paying less than 5%. So the tax code is, massively biased against labor in favor of capital. And that means there's a lot of artificial incentives for automating. So that would be one thing. I don't know whether you would call that a macro policy or not, but that uh, creating a more symmetric tax structure would be very relevant. But in addition, just like the uh, energy sector, I think direct subsidies could be useful. The problem is it took us a while to know how to do that, you know, 
You know, we now know things are related to greenhouse gases and that's the carbon content. We have a measurement of the carbon content. So you can think of carbon taxes or what are green technologies, what are not. Even in this area, there's a lot of confusion. You know, uh, a lot of uh, oil companies are saying they're spending a lot on green technologies. But uh, if you look into the details, there's a lot of question mark there. So, so we need a, a better measurement framework of what are the sort of pro-human, pro-worker technologies that, you know, a government program, just like uh, the Departments of Defense or NSF or NIH in the past have done for other technologies could be in the business of providing some grants. I think that we should definitely plan that. I don't think we're ready for it, but we can get ready for it. I'm going to come to this side of the room and um, Peter. Uh, I'm sorry, right up here in the white shirt. I think it's purple, actually. I can't tell. Your argument seems to be based on a distinction between good automation and bad automation. I wonder to what extent that distinction is subjective or whether any objective measure is possible. After all, if you ask any group of people um, to comment upon whether a particular example of automation is a good thing or a bad thing, you tend to get a variety of viewpoints. Yes, absolutely. And again, as I said, there's a lot of subjectivity and measurement challenges. But the way I would put it as uh, the distinction that I think is easiest to understand, I wouldn't, I've sometimes in some presentations talked about good automation and bad automation, but the term that I use in my academic work and in the book is automation versus new tasks and having a balance between these two. and from an empirical point of view, if you look at the effects of automation, uh, work that I have done with Pascual Restrepo and more recent, uh, even higher quality data work that David Otter and colleagues have done, finds that automation tends to reduce labor demand and wage payments and new tasks, however you measure it, or you know, even harder to measure, but work that I've done with Pascual Restrepo and David Otter's work finds that it tends to increase worker productivity, and it tends to increase wages and labor share. So that distinction exists. It's not perfect. And, and there is also some evidence, although even less solid, that the productivity gains at the aggregate level or the industry level are somewhat better from the new tasks than automation. So I think there is at least a body of empirical evidence, and we can do much better both in terms of uh, the measurement framework and the measurement on that. Let's stick on this side. Uh... Uh, follow in the, that's a white t-shirt. <laughs> <laughs> uh, thank you so much. Uh, my name is Shreyan Singh. Uh, I'm a master's student studying economic policy here at LSE. Uh, uh, so your idea about how the pro-human, uh, pro-machine idea of how um, machine and human need to go hand in hand, uh, just to build upon on that, uh, I wanted to ask what role does the education system play in this? Like what about the mechanism of making sure that the human skills are in line with using AI or machine as a co-pilot, if I can use that word, uh, while working? So does that burden fall on the education system or the employer or something even beyond the education system? Great question. And let me say, make three points. First of all, yes, absolutely. New tasks require new skills. For example, if you look at the blue color new tasks that were so important for wage growth in the 50s, they often took retraining and training. So that's why many corporations got into the business of providing training programs, sometimes kicking and screaming. That was one of the debates between 
you know, companies like GM and Ford and uh, United Auto Workers, how much training, retraining should be. And the German automakers, for example, have done much better in sort of institutionalizing that training. And the education system will have to play a role more generally as well. That being said, I we discuss education much less in the book than you might have expected. And one reason for that is because I don't want to fall into the very sometimes common but in my mind, insufficient, in uh, inadequate policy recommendation, you know, whatever is the problem, the solution is more education. And whatever the problem, the solution is more college education, wonderful college education. We're all college educated here. I love it. But first of all, uh, I don't like the conceptual framework, which says technology should go wherever it goes and education should be the one that catches up with it. Probably they should meet somewhere in the middle and redirecting technological changes about that. And I also don't believe that college education for all is the right objective. I think there is a lot that workers do in terms of physical work, in terms of gaining expertise in specific tasks. I don't think the future will be much better if all electricians were college educated. The future would be much better if electricians were more plentiful and were much better at their job and meaning much better expertise, some of it with the aid of new technology. So I think we need a more nuanced way of thinking of education than, you know, oh, inequality is increasing, let's give more education. And the final point is that actually the education system itself right now is threatened by generative AI tools because it's going to create a transformation. And I don't know where we're going to end up in the education system. Let's come back to the other side here. Um, you had your hand up in the yeah, center there. Hi, Torsten Pearson from Stockholm University, also Centennial professor here at school. So um, when you spoke about shared prosperity uh, and con you chose to contrast the US and the UK in the early post-war period with the later post-war period, you could have also, uh, I think, contrasted uh, different countries in the late uh, post-war period. I'm, I'm from Scandinavia and Scandinavia is quite different from the US in many ways, not least when it comes to the power of unions and uh, at least union membership. And if you were, and it has undergone basically the same type of automation processes and capital accumulation as, as UK and the US, and yet there is more shared prosperity. Those real wage curves that you drew for the UK and the US would be upward sloping uh, for almost all educational groups in, in Scandinavia. So I think uh, maybe the, the argument becomes more powerful if you can point to positive examples as well as negative examples. Yes, thank you, wonderful. And I meant to come back to that. We do discuss exactly that in the book to some extent. The picture is... Uh, uh, <clears throat> very much like you say, but it's a little more complicated in that, you know, uh, no country is perfect. You know, the two examples we give in the book are Sweden and, uh, and Germany, and they both have some problems, uh, but both of them have dealt with automation much better. Both of them have done so because there has been more worker voice and more effort to sort of protect workers in the face of automation. And both of them have actually automated even faster than, uh, American firms in manufacturing, not in other sectors. 
Uh, but in both cases, inequality also increased in Germany, actually in the labor market very sharply for a variety of reasons we can get into. In, in Sweden, in the labor market, it hasn't increased, but overall it has increased with the, both the top 1% and the earn uh, and overall income because of labor supply, immigration, and uh, and fiscal transfer reasons. So the, the picture is a little bit. So if you look at headline numbers, inequality is actually higher in Sweden, as you know, much better than I do. But if you look at wage data, it's not higher. So, it's, so there's some nuance there. So that's uh, that needs to be taken into account. There's a familiar face in the center right here. Um, black. There you go. Right in the center there. Uh, hi, thanks for the talk. Um, my name is Catherine. In government and international development here at LSC. So I found your idea about uh, new tasks and a vision for new tasks and new ways of using technology very inspiring. And I wanted to ask if you could link, to, link that to the wave, if we can put it that way, of labor activism that we see in the US right now. And I wonder if you think unions and the union movement right now is a, is a source of new ideas and innovation in the directions that, that you're calling for or you would talk about, or do you think that what unions and labor are doing right now is, is more defensive? A defensive action and the the innovation really has to come from elsewhere fantastic question and unfortunately the answer is much more mixed than that so uh <clears throat> i think the labor movement is i'm and i'm talking to a number of people from the labor movement uh both to understand what they're doing and sometimes to provide perspective and i think they're very much behind in thinking about these issues and a lot of them is defensive the uaw for example has not articulated an alternative to electric vehicles. And it's just like, sounds a little bit like just say no. On the other hand, WGA was very inspiring. WGA zeroed in on the right topics. Of course, it's a very different type of union. And, and the final agreement is very much along the lines of who controls AI. It's not denying AI, but it's saying, you know, you want to control AI, you want the workers to have a say on how to use AI, whether to use AI and who will get the benefits from AI. And but but I think most of the industry is behind. There are a few people in the industry who are trying to sort of bring this topic to the fore. But here, the cross-country perspective is actually very useful. The U.S. labor movement is really uh, in a very disadvantaged position, both because it's been weak for a while, but also institutionally, I think it's very difficult to do these things with establishment level bargaining, whereas the U.S. law, at least as interpreted, means this is establishment level bargaining, whereas, you know, the, the, the Swedish example that Torsten gave, I think that's very much bracketed by industry level bargains and that you cannot do in the US. So there's a big disadvantage for the labor movement. So I don't know how that's going to shake up. We'll take the gentleman in the blue shirt back here, T-shirt. Yeah. Robert Wade. Thanks, Robert Wade from um, the Department of International Development here at LSE. Um, you have said rather little about finance and the role of the financial sector in this redirection of technology. Um, I wonder, for example, whether you think uh, that it would be important to uh, restructure the incentives on asset managers, on, uh, on venture capitalists, in order to um, shift from um, machine automation to machine usefulness? 
Fantastic question. It's one of the many areas in the book that we thought of including and I think uh, made the right decision of not including because the book is already long, could be used as a weapon. Uh, so we didn't want to make it even longer. But I think you've put your finger exactly on the on the one important aspect of the financial industry that uh, I think is problematic, which is venture capital as it has developed. I don't think there's anything wrong with the idea of venture capital, but the way that the venture capital developed in the United States, it's created resources and a push for market share and market dominance. And that really pushed tech industry much more into this path of both becoming more oligopolistic and becoming more data uh, monopoly. So if you look at the path of you know, Google and Facebook, you know, just trying to get as, or Amazon to get as big as possible so that we can control as much of the market, as much of the data. I think that's very important. I think we are seeing a, a version of that with ChatGPT. You know, the, 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 the word from, uh, and I, it's not private information, many people said that. People inside OpenAI couldn't understand why ChatGPT was rolled out the way it was because it was based on GPT-3, which was a far inferior technology to GPT-4, which was already in development. So even if you wanted to have a big push, it wasn't clear why you wanted to go with GPT-3. And But it all makes sense if what you wanted was to be the first, create big hype and control as much of the data as much of the market. And I think that's the sort of venture capital model that I think will need to change somehow. And how that will happen, like alternative sources of finance, uh, regulation, I definitely wouldn't be in favor of like regulating what companies do, but if you regulate how data is used and create incentives for higher quality data and different focus on technologies, I think that would be uh, uh, complementary, symbiotic with the sort of thing that you've put your finger on. Chris, let's take a question from online. So this this question comes from Susan uh, Nazaro, who's also in the US. Is an LSE alum. How does a move to more autocratic government systems, even within democracies, impact the ability of the counterforces you mentioned, such as labor and consumer rights movements, to emerge and thrive? What can be done? Great question. I wish I knew the answer. Uh, so, in the book, we have a full and probably overlong chapter on democracy. I think it's critical. The questions of democracy cannot be separated from what happens to technology, who controls technology. And I have worked on democracy for most of my career. Uh, you know, arguably I've written perhaps two and a half books that's on democracy. And I don't understand why democracy is in such dire straits. I have ideas, other social scientists have ideas, but I don't think we can blame all of it on social media and control of information, but it's playing a very important role. So I think uh, reimagining a different type of economy where there is better returns for labor would help in general and having a more decentralized, less monopolized control of information would help. But I think it's also one of the very difficult things to achieve in terms of like, you know, once you have degraded the quality of democratic discourse and democratic citizenship, both because of economic changes and the changes that have happened in the way that media interacts with people, uh, I think it's, it's, it's a difficult thing to rebuild. Let's take a question right down here. Um, where's the usher? Uh, in the yellow blazer? Right. The right color this time. Yeah, good. 
Hi, thank you for the really informative and interesting talk. My name is Gemma Lee and I am a master's student in international relations at LSE. So my question is based on AI and AI governance. So because one interesting discussion on AI is that there has always been like you create something and then you try to create policies in trying to govern AI, especially in the area of AI. So I'm wondering for AI and labor employment, is it possible for policymakers to perhaps make preemptive policies to, I guess, to steer the direction of technology development to the way that you were talking about? So which, which makes, uh, I guess, employment, labor better. So yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think, again, uh, the, 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 my belief is the answer is yes. Uh, and some of it is try, the book tries to articulate that it is possible to have this direction of AI that's more complementary to workers, that creates more new tasks, better information. Uh, a lot of the book, in fact, all of the book was completed before ChatGPT. We had a, a few uh, weeks to put a few sentences in there about ChatGPT. How could you not? But it was it was before generative AI uh, sort of really came on the scene. Uh, recently, uh, Simon Johnson, David Otter, and I put out a discussion paper from our new initiative, uh, which was funded by your new director, Larry Kramer. So thanks, Larry. Uh, uh, called "Can We Have Pro Worker AI?" Where we go through a more comprehensive answer to your fantastic question. So we try to explain what we think are the technical pathways by which you can have that, when, what are the, some of the policy levers that can help us. But you know, we're shooting in the dark. There has been pro-worker technologies in the past, but there has not been an explicit program for that. So it's bound to have complexities. <clears throat> Thank you, Dana Allen from the International Institute for Strategic Studies. Um, that's a very striking um, slide that you finished with. Uh, but one thing that occurs to me is that the alternative energy sources were pre-existing, that they, you know, they just had to be cheaper, and it was all established. And I'm wondering if you can say a little bit more about whether your human helping AI is pre-existing or if it's a technology that is plastic enough um, to be made to exist. Great question. And, uh, and my answer is some of it, yes, some of it, no. But let me give you one example that actually we have in the book to some degree and then uh, well, in some detail, and we provide even more detail in this paper that I've mentioned, which is education sector. So in the education sector, we can use AI for more automation, more online teaching, more automated tech grading, less sort of emphasis on teachers. But actually, there's an alternative path, which uh, I think is much more promising, which is you can create truly personalized education, which, you know, right now with the existing technologies is too prohibitively expensive. You don't have enough teachers, you know, how are you going to do that? But with AI, you can actually in real time recognize from a variety of data what students are having trouble with what part of this curriculum. And then you can dynamically change the curriculum, just like you would do with a personalized Twitter to actually help those students. But 
it would require a different technology and it would require more teachers that have the skills that have been trained to use the AI. Now, the question is, is this a dream? Actually, if you look at a technology like that, it's completely within the frontier. There is no, you don't need any big advances. You don't need, you know, huge generative AI breakthroughs. It's completely, the elements of that are completely done. And there, uh, I recently found out that there are even some people in Carnegie Mellon uh, who are thinking about similar things, but there's no commercial interest in it. So that's the sense in which I think we are at an impasse because if the commercial interests were there, the interest from the tech industry was there, that's a technology that could be developed, you know, in the in the course of several months, perhaps a year. That's my assessment. I may be wrong, but but it's just, you know, we're not doing it. Gentleman right back here and um, got like a red band on his wrist there. Thank you so much. Uh, I'm Rafael Jean Sudanov and um, LSA alumni. Um, I wanted to ask you, uh, you focus in your speech on uh, domestic challenges, but the bigger challenges that we face now are global. So is the role of for AI and technology in, in resolving such conflicts as in the Middle East or between Russia and Ukraine or in the trade talks between countries? Thank you. Thank you very much. I, of course, appreciate there are really important global challenges, but we are still in the realm of the nation state. All politics is local, all politics is national. So we have to start with the domestic ones, I believe. But I think if we get the domestic one right, it can help with the international issues. That being said, I think the biggest international issue that this can help with is democracy and workers around the world. I'm not convinced that AI has any role in, has a major role in fighting climate change or international poverty or things like that. I don't believe AI is going to make us more peaceful. I think AI can be a better human decision-making tool if we use it right. And then a lot of the other things, making peace, the dealing with climate change, dealing with global health and poverty issues, those are human decisions, and we should never delegate them to machines anyway. We're coming to the end here. I'd like to take uh, just a couple more questions. Maybe I'll, I'll bundle them. Is that Perfect. Okay? Yes, of course. Yeah. So the woman right here and hello my name is joe ella and i am a economic policy master's student here um, i come from an agricultural background and the uh, automation technology technology it's all done amazing things for the agricultural community and this is especially important considering that less and less people are becoming interested in agriculture and more land is becoming urbanized and so technology and automation is allowing people to produce more food with less resources. And so to me and most people in the agricultural community, it's a really good thing. And so how can we know in what industries we want automation and what industries we don't want as much automation, um, especially with like without having um, policy and the unintended consequences of it or without it? This gentleman has been very patient right here. Thank you. Very good talk. I enjoyed your book, by the way, on democracy. My question really is, if you project all this 20 years into what effects for employment among uh, people who have not had college degrees, I see a situation here where jobs are disappearing and what we're seeing replacing them is warehousing, lots and lots of warehouses. What's going to happen to those people? Are we going to have to build more prisons? 
Can I answer those two questions are yes, actually uh, very yeah. complementary. So let me let me answer them. Two two fantastic questions. Yes, absolutely. I think mechanization in agriculture has been a success, and it's not just with AI. It's been an ongoing process. You know, in 1850, about 60 percent of the U.S. workforce was in uh, just under 60 percent was in agriculture, and you know, by 1940, that was down to a few percent, uh, and and that was just amazing. Productivity increased many fold during that process. But if the United States, if all that the United States did during that time was mechanize agriculture, then it would either have create more prisons or it would have had a really bleak future for most workers. But if you look at what happened during that period, the first uh, 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 manufacturing industry and then non-manufacturing services created a huge number of new tasks. Some new skills and these new tasks combined led to an actually labor boom and uh, you know labor share actually increased rather than fall in the aggregate economy, despite the fact that labor share you know went close to zero in in agriculture. So, so I think this is going back to what I said at the very beginning. I don't think we should be against automation. We want automation. Some of the tasks that have been automated in manufacturing were the most dangerous, the most unhealthy, the most uh, onerous tasks. Good riddance. But if we don't create some new human tasks in their place, that's the problem. So agriculture is clearly a sector that should benefit more from mechanization, but we need to create new tasks. And that's where the question is. And I think the big issue so far, we, I, we don't know what, we don't have a crystal ball. The big issue so far has not been unemployment. U.S. employment is employment to population ratio is declined a little bit, but it's not like massively down. It's been that people are pushed into lower quality jobs with lower pay rather than the good jobs that technology and institutions used to create. So the future may involve more and more of that if we go down this path, or it may involve more unemployment. In my work, I've also found that automation does lead to lower employment to population ratio, but not the, the effects are smaller than wages. So, so I think the, and at some point, the issue of social control may become a, a very a dystopian one. Yeah, absolutely. I would worry about that. But even before we get that, there's a, there's a something worse that I worry about. And, uh, and we start the book with a quote from H.G. Wells, uh, you know, because in the time machine, I think he worried about the right two things. One is that technology is not about just about control of humans over nature, it's about control of humans over humans. And that if you don't get that right, you may actually create a two-tier society, a two-class society. And that's actually what I would worry about before the prisons, if we have a two-tier society with the makers of a very elite class and all the rest, that's, that's really a very, very sad situation. I think we're going to leave it there. We've, we've reached 7.30, and I, I know there, we could keep going. There are plenty of hands up. Um, uh, just one housekeeping uh, note. Um, Darren mentioned Larry Kramer, the incoming um, vice chancellor and, and president of LSE. He's actually going to be here tomorrow morning to welcome uh, everybody. He's, I think he's actually going to be here to greet people over coffee and croissants starting at, at 8.30 in the morning. We'll, the first panel tomorrow will begin um, at 9.30. But for now, I'd ask you to do three things. First, to join Darren, myself, and the rest of the conference speakers for a glass of wine uh, immediately afterwards uh, here um, to check out 
the PhD uh, research uh, exhibit and also the book exhibit or the book stall. Uh, I know there's copies of Darren's book. You brought your pen, didn't you? Yeah, so I'm sure he'd be happy to sign uh, as well. And last but not least, please join me in thanking Darren for just a fantastic presentation.